like you to take a Bible, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're in a series on the first four chapters in 1 Corinthians, which is about the unity of the church. Paul is writing to a church that is today in Greece, and in this church, which was a very gifted church, they had some issues that he wants to address. And the passage we want to think about this morning, you need to understand is sort of a backdrop to the real point that is going to come next week. The real point is that they're not acting the way they should be, but in order to, to set the stage to understand that, we have the passage before us today. This is on page 953, if you pick up a Bible on a chair around you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious and holy God, thank you that you give to us your word and it, it is that which instructs us in your mind, that tells us your thoughts about us, your thoughts towards us, and the way you want us to live. And so we ask that you would open our minds to understand it. And we pray that this morning you would move our hearts to obey what we find there. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember once, a number of years ago, being in a conversation with my younger sister, and something I said upset her, and she said, you are so judgmental. And she said, don't you know that Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged? Now, the fact is, I don't remember what we were talking about. She may have been right at that point. Maybe I was being judgmental. But the thing is, those words that Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged, are often taken to mean that we should never make any judgment about anything. And they simply can't mean that. 
whatever Jesus meant, he couldn't have meant don't ever make any judgments in life because life requires that we make constant judgments. All the judgment is is discerning between two things and choosing one, which means rejecting the other. We do it all the time. Most of the things we judge about are inconsequential, deciding what clothes to wear in the morning, for example. But many are significant. I need to hire someone at my job. I have to discern between various applicants, and I have to make judgments about their character, about their abilities, and their social skills, and teamwork skills, and all kinds of things. And in, in the end, I have to reject some and accept one. Or if my 13-year-old wants to go to Billy's house and play a video game or watch a movie, I have to make a judgment. I have to understand what it is he wants to do and what the content is and decide whether that will be a good thing for him to be involved in and be exposed to or not. And, and I have to reject one and accept the other, whatever the decision is. Now, I think those words, judge not, lest you be judged, Jesus basically meant don't speak authoritatively and finally about things that are beyond your pay grade, particularly people's eternal destiny and even people's character. Don't make final judgments, unbending judgments about people and things. But the fact is we do have to draw lines in life. Everyone knows that. We do it constantly. And what you need to know is that God makes judgments too. And in fact, the, the Bible, its message, the gospel, it draws a big black line that cuts through all of humanity. And we need to know that line and understand it. The line is not always clear to us, as we'll see, but it is crystal clear to God, and people fall on one side or the other. And I want to think about that this morning. I want to think about the fact that this passage tells us about that line and the fact that the line matters because of where the message comes from and because of how the message comes to us and because of who receives it and because of what it produces in people's lives. So that's what we want to think about for a few minutes where the gospel comes from, how the gospel comes to us, who receives it, and what it produces in people's lives. Now, the first thing we find in this passage is simply that the gospel, the message of God, that the whole Bible unfolds, comes from God. In other words, the Bible, or the gospel has a supernatural origin, is not something that people thought up themselves. You will need to look at your Bible for this, and, and I want you to look at verse 6. Paul says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And so Paul says, in contrast to the wisdom that the world gives that he talked about in the, the two preceding paragraphs, he, he says there is a wisdom that we are talking about. There is a message from God that we should pay attention to. And this wisdom we impart to the mature. Now, I just want you to underline that word in your thinking because it's going to come up, at least the concept comes up in the passage, and it forms part of the backdrop here. First he says, wisdom comes from God and is grasped by the mature. Now, second, that tells us that it is not capable of being grasped by unaided human wisdom. That is, the human faculties 
cannot grasp this truth. It, they, they are hidden. And it's because this wisdom is rooted in God. It's a secret within God's person. And he says it was decreed before our ages. And it's talking about God's eternal plan conceived in eternity past. Before everything, anything existed, God determined and is now unfolding a certain plan. So it was hidden in God. It's secret. It was before the ages. And it was for our glory, he says. Now, this does away with all evolutionary views of religion. And you need to understand that, first off. The Bible doesn't allow for this idea that most of us were taught, especially if you ever took a religion class in a secular university, you were probably taught that religion is something that is slowly developed through the millennia as people emerged out of the primitive state in which they worshiped rocks and trees and animals and so forth. It emerged to a higher plane of spiritism and that kind of thing, and eventually it arrived at what is often called ethical monotheism. That is the idea that there's one God. That took many, many millennia to get to. And finally, human beings evolved to a point where we understood that there's only one God and that this God expects us to live in certain ways. Some uh, were geniuses through the centuries, and as they pondered deep things, they, they conceived great ideas, and they described God in those ways. And so great religions evolved slowly over time, that give us their different but profound insights into God. And I have to tell you, that evolutionary view of religion is uh, commonly taught, but the Bible regards it as just so much rubbish. It, it, no such thing. The Bible asserts from beginning to end, and this passage makes it clear, that we would still be in a primitive state, worshiping rocks and trees and things like that, if God himself had not revealed himself to us. That's what the message of the Bible is. Paul calls this a secret and hidden wisdom. And by that, he doesn't mean that it is impenetrable, obscure, something that only a few very clever people can understand. He's referring to the gospel, the unfolding message of the Bible that centers on the person of Christ. It is the message of God. And it is particularly what God has intended to do, what he decreed, he says, in eternity past, to do for the salvation of of the people, of peop his people, and the glory of his name. It's the plan of salvation, rooted in eternity. It's being unfolded in time as different ones are brought into it. And we would say that now it is an open secret. The gospel is clear. It's made plain. It can be understood by people. But it comes from God. We wouldn't have thought it up ourselves. No matter how wise or discerning a person might be, they can't reason out the contours of the message that God proclaims. I mean, let's face it, in the first century, it was the greatest religion, purest religion, and the greatest government that had ever existed at that point in time who conspired together to put Jesus on the cross. I mean, that, that's exactly what he says in the next two verses. None of the rulers of this age, verse 8, understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus didn't die by accident. He didn't die because he got caught up by some primitive people in a wild place who, who put him to death. He died because the greatest government and the purest religion at that point conspired together to put him to death. And the content of this message that comes from God, he states for us in verse 9, as it is written, what 
no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, but God is prepared for those who love him. That's the content. But God is prepared for those who love him. God's purpose is unfolding throughout time. He says, this is what God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now, before we go on, I just want to note, this all tells us that the, the gospel, this message from God, originates with God and it comes to us. It's not something any human being could have figured out, come up with. Even the best storytellers could never have crafted a story that unfolds God's purpose as it's described for us in the Bible. And that means that the whole Bible records this message. Everything before the coming of Christ is meant to prepare us for him and understanding God's purposes leading up to him. And from the cross and the empty tomb on, everything unfolds the story of what God has done with that from that point. The Bible is God's word written. And, and so if that's true, we need to treat it as though this is not just a book that someone long ago gathered together a bunch of writings from over a number of centuries from different places. And he said, these are good things. These are things that people thought about God, important things. That, that's not how the Bible came about that this is God's word written. Yes, different people wrote it at different times. The Bible itself claims that it is God's word written. It tells us that the Bible came about because human beings who loved God, who were in relationship with him, the Holy Spirit so moved upon them and within them that they wrote down their experiences they wrote down the things that God taught them, spoke to them, showed them. And when they wrote those things down, they used their human faculties, their abilities, their language, their temperament at that point, the kind of people that they were. All of those things came into play. But God so guided them by his spirit that what they wrote down was what God intended for us to know. It is God's word written. So if you're exploring the Christian faith particularly, let me encourage you to read the Bible with that in mind. You may think that the Bible is just a gathering of, of writings that people have wrote, important things about God, but it contains a mixture of truth and error like any human writings do. That's what I was taught. That's what I believed when I began to read the Bible when I was 18 years old. But what I want you to do is to, to think the Bible itself claims not to be what I really think it is and what many people think it is. It claims to be God's word written. And read it with that in mind. As you read it, ask yourself, if this is the case, then this passage that I am reading today, whatever it is, what does it mean if, in fact, this is God's word written? And I don't mean to set aside your doubts or pretend you believe something you don't believe. I simply mean to read the Bible, understanding what it internally communicates to you, which is that it is the message of God for you. And you may find, as time goes on, that it begins to unfold its meaning to you. In the great words of the Westminster Confession, you may find that the majesty of its style and the efficacy of its truth and the plan of salvation and the unfolding story which is aimed at giving all glory to God and the simplicity of its language leads you to conclude that this, in fact, is the word of God. It may be the case, but that's how you need to read the Bible. 
That's the first thing about the gospel. The gospel comes from God. It draws lines because, first of all, it is God's message. It's not something human beings unaided could ever have come up with or can even understand. Now, the second thing the passage goes on and says to us is that the gospel, this message, its true significance is only revealed to individuals by the Holy Spirit. It draws lines because of who reveals it. Who is the one who effectively makes it understandable? And that's what he says in verse 10. Having quoted this passage in the Old Testament, know what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. The things that God has prepared for those who love him, for those who love him, that is, God's purposes as they unfold in history, what God intends for humanity, all of that we could never understand. But these are the things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. That is, the Spirit is the one who takes the Word of God and he reveals them to individuals. Just as no one knows what I am thinking unless I tell them, it remains hidden inside of me unless I use my physical body to be a vehicle to express what I feel inside to other people. No one knows what it is. It's hidden inside of me. And it's understood only by the the real me inside, the um, immaterial person that the Bible calls... uh, the spirit. Just as a person's thoughts is known only by that person, he says in verse 11, in the very same way God's thoughts are only understood by his spirit, that is, the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is the one who is fully aware of all that God is and all that God thinks being himself God. And he plums, it says, the depths of God. He understands the deep things of God, everything that God is about. And in that same way, God is capable of communicating those things to us. And he does it through his word, but it is his word that is effectively applied by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who takes the truth of the word of God and he penetrates our hearts with it and he drives it home so that we understand and we apply it. Now, I have to tell you, that's the only reason I continue to preach after this many years. It's because I can take the Bible and I can read it and think about it. I can spend a week or two pondering a passage and gathering all kinds of resources to study it and trying to understand it. I can outline the passage to see the flow of thought as you move through it and all of those things. And I can even, if God moves, I can even taste what it is about. I can experience it myself on some level. But when it comes to sitting down and writing out what I want to say, I I have no ability to truly penetrate people's hearts with the truth. And I have little hope of doing that because I have one hour, in fact, about a half an hour, to counteract 167 other hours that we all spend outside of this room, in which we're flooded with all kinds of information and visual images and social media and things that, that are not, for the most part, often about the truths of God. And I have little hope of making any difference of saying anything that is going to have real consequence in a person's life. I have no assurance that anyone's going to be changed beyond a recognition, oh, I liked that or I didn't like that. It sounded good. It was about a significant subject. But the Spirit of God, we are told, is the one who effectively reveals it. That is, he is the one who takes a truth and he penetrates a person's inner being with it, and he is capable of bringing its truth to bear on us in such a way that we respond to it. Now, 
I need to note the third thing and then come back and put them together. If the Holy Spirit is the one who effectively reveals this truth to individuals, he reveals it, the passage tells us, to spiritual people. And this is most important. He reveals this truth and he drives them home to people who are spiritual, is what the passage says. So read verse 12 with me. Now we, the we there, Paul is obviously referring to we Christians, we who have received this message, we have trusted in Christ. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That is, we, he's referring there to uh, those who teach among believers, we explain spiritual truths in human words, and we explain it to the benefit of those who are spiritual or spiritual people. And that word describes those who possess the Holy Spirit, the one that we have been given, he says. We have received in verse 12. The one who, verse 10, reveals to us these great things of God's intentions towards us. The Holy Spirit lives inside some people, according to this passage. He calls them, in verse 6, the mature he calls them in verse 12, we, believers, Christians. And uh, in verse 13, those who are spiritual, spiritual people. And he doesn't live inside of others. And that's what he says in the next verse, verse 14. The natural person does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, that's where he draws the line. There's a great line drawn through humanity, and it divides the natural from the spiritual. The spiritual person is the person who possesses the Holy Spirit and therefore has the internal capacity, the internal teacher who is able to take the truths and apply them effectively to the heart. The natural person, and the word literally means soulish, the soulish person lives only on a horizontal plane. The soul describes that very central and important part of human life that is my immaterial self, the person who inhabits this human body, so to speak, and it describes me on a horizontal level. The soul, as well as the spirit, uses my body as a vehicle through which it expresses to other people what it is about. And so the soul includes my personality, my temperament, all those quirks about me that are the ways of speaking and acting and treating people that are, that are then communicated to others through my body as I speak and as I live. And this says that um, the Holy Spirit is the one for those who believe the gospel who is the ever-present source of teaching. He lives inside of us, and he takes the word of the gospel and he applies it to us. Now, this um, happens in the beginning when we first understand the gospel, at whatever age that is for each individual. When we first understand the gospel and we believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit is the one who makes that truth personal for us. 
In fact, the Bible tells us that if you could take the gospel message, which is the whole message of God towards humanity, if you could take it and boil it down to its, its most simple form, it's stated in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead to save us. That is basically the gospel message. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead to save us. Now, I understood that for many years. I went to church growing up and heard those words in various forms. I went to a different church when I was in high school, and I began to recite the Apostles' Creed. And, and in doing that, I, th those words are in there. Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead. And I knew that the Bible had those words in it, but I didn't have a clue what the significance of those words were. They were just words that I recited. When I was younger, I figured, you know, the message apparently of religion, of the Christian religion, is, is if you're good, God will accept you. So if I try to live a good life, then when I get to the end, maybe God will accept me. Now, what happened is, I, as I got older, I began to learn some things about Christianity, and I realized that Jesus had some part in that whole thing. And, and so what I concluded was that if I um, believe in Jesus, that he died for my sins and rose from the dead, he will assist me so that I can live a good life, and then in the end, hopefully, he'll accept me. Now, that's not quite the significance of the message, but what happened is, as I went to college and I, I met Christians and they invited me to Bible studies and I began to read the Bible for the first time with some seriousness and talk about it with people, I, I, I came to this conclusion that, oh, believing in Jesus is important, so I need to believe in him. And of course, I obviously need to live a good life and do the best I can so that in the end, God will weigh out my works and he'll decide whether I was good enough or not. And, and what happened is, as I began to read this, this book and I began to think about its message and talk with other people about it, I went to a meeting. I was 19 years of age. It was during the summer. I went to a meeting on a college, a university campus uh, one weekend. It was like a retreat. And this man spoke. His message actually was a bit complicated when I look back on it. But something about what he said, it's like it came clear to me, oh, I'm not, that, that's not quite right, this idea that Jesus is going to help me to get to heaven. He's done some things that, that have kind of helped me a little bit so that if I do my best, I'll get there. That these words, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead to save us, mean that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing more that I can pay. It's all found in him. And when I believe that that is true, I'm forgiven. And I remember sitting in the meeting, and for me it was like a light went on. And it was, I don't mean anything emotionally or mystical or anything that's like that. It was like, oh, Jesus paid it all. I'm forgiven. My debt is gone. I'm free to live for God. Now, there were so many more things that were true that I didn't have a clue about at that point, and I came to understand them and still am coming to understand them over years and years. But what happened at that moment that I didn't understand, but now I see is that at that moment, the Holy Spirit took the truths of the gospel, Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead to save us. And he is the one who effectively took that and made a connection between my soul and the word of God. So that those words were no longer just a creed that I recited, or they were no longer something that I thought might help me to get to God if I did my best, but they were in fact gospel, good news. They meant I was forgiven. In fact, I came to understand that 
those words, our sins, Christ died for our sins, obviously in its context means the sins of all believers, all who trust in him. Christ died for our sins. And that I was counted in that number. I was part of that all. I was one of God's children, one of God's people. And as a result, that assurance of faith was mine because of what Jesus did, not because of what I had done or would do as I went forward. I belonged to God. I was forgiven. My debt was paid. And then what I found is that as I began to grow spiritually, that same process was continually at work. And all that was happening was the truths of God's word. The Holy Spirit would at times take those things, and rather than just being something that I understood intellectually, they became something that was rooted in my heart, and I realized this is the kind of person I want to be. This is what God says is true of me and the way that I want to live. That's what verse 12 says. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that, in order that, we might understand the things freely given us by God. And, and that tells us that this spiritual insight that God gives to the spiritual person, the person who possesses the spirit, this spiritual insight doesn't happen automatically. It's not that God automatically makes every person who possesses the Spirit full of all the knowledge that they need. What it means is that we are given the source of life, the Holy Spirit, who is the one able to effectively apply the Word of God to our hearts so that as we are exposed, as we choose to be exposed to God's Word, as we read it, as we listen to people talk about it and explain it, as we read books about it, as we sit in Bible studies and talk with other people about it, as we hear preaching, whatever it is, as we do that, the Holy Spirit is the ever-present source of true teaching and understanding who is able to take those things and to drive them into our hearts with effective understanding and application. And that's why Paul says we still need human teachers. And he ends that by saying in verse 13, and we impart this, these things freely given us by God, the understanding, the experience of that, we impart this not in words taught by human wisdom, not simply trying to be effective ourselves in what we're saying, but words taught by the Spirit, that is, seeking to teach the Word of God in reliance upon the Spirit's power to work in people's hearts. Taught by the Holy Spirit so that we're seeking to communicate spiritual truths to people who possess the Spirit. The effective teacher is the Spirit. Now, that's the great divide. On one side, there is the spiritual person, those who believe in Jesus unto eternal life, who have trusted in Christ alone as the source of life and forgiveness, and the natural person, those who have, only by their unaided human faculties, the ability only to understand things on a horizontal plane. Not having the spirit, this person cannot relate vertically to God or even truly grasp and effectively apply to himself or herself the truths that come. I became a Christian in the summer of 1973, about a year after my wife, my girlfriend at that time. Laura and I had begun dating when we were 15. When we went to college, we went to different colleges and um, she became a Christian her first year and began to talk to me. I got involved in Bible studies and things like that. And that first summer after my first year of college, 
I trusted in Christ, as I've described. And the next summer, I, I um, went on a mission trip. I had my parents' permission. I told them what I was going to do. I was going to go to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and work with a bunch of other students and talk to people on the beaches and in different places about Christ and start Bible studies and that kind of thing. And my parents gave me permission to do that, and we didn't really talk about it much until after I left, and they were very upset. I think they didn't really think Tommy was going to do this. You know, <laughs> wasn't really going to get in his car and drive to South Carolina by himself where he didn't know anybody or the people that he was going to meet with. And they were quite upset, and they called Laura. She'd been a part of my life, and my parents knew her, and they knew that we were dating each other. And they, they asked, what in the world is Tom doing? I mean, has he gotten into something that's going to mess up his whole life? Uh, and, and so they invited her to come over, and she went over there. And she took with her this, a Bible that her parents had given her. And uh, they had this long discussion. I don't really know what it was all about, except that my father particularly just couldn't understand what this was all about and why in the world I would do it. And he kept saying, I don't understand. And finally, Laura opened up her Bible to this passage. And she said, well, I, I think the Bible tells us why you don't understand. Because it says, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And the truth is that Tom has accepted Jesus as his Savior. God lives inside of him. And because you haven't, you can't understand what God is doing in his life. And you know what my father said? He said, well, that makes sense. <laughs> now, if I hadn't married Laura because I was madly in love with her and I couldn't imagine living life without her, I would have married her just because she said that to my father. <laughs> I mean, I think I would have figured that a woman with that kind of strength and wisdom, I need batting on my team, you know? <laughs> but the truth is, the gospel draws a line. It's a big black line. It draws, it's drawn through all of humanity, and it puts people on one side or the other, and the line is clear to God. It's not always clear to us, but it's clear to God. At first, we may not even be clear which side we're on, well, that becomes clear as time goes on, as we learn to walk with God. But it draws a line, and it distinguishes those who possess the Spirit and have the capacity to understand God's truth and to apply it, and who seek to live in the way that the Spirit is prompting them to live from all those people who, no matter how wise and intelligent and, and good on a horizontal plane they might be, do not possess the Spirit, are incapable of understanding the things of God and, and what it means to live for him. We need to understand that that is how the world is divided in the mind of God. And that people fall on one side or the other. They belong to God eternally or they don't. They possess the spirit or they don't. They can understand and apply the things of God or they can't. And that's a judgment that God makes, although it's not judgmental because the line, the door, so to speak, is always open for the natural person to move to become the spiritual person through trusting in Christ. 
Now, finally, what this passage tells us is not only is it true that this gospel comes from God, and not only is it true that it is the Holy Spirit who effectively reveals it to individuals, and that it is only individuals in whom the Holy Spirit produces life and comes to live the Holy Spirit, which he does by his sovereign work in producing in us faith in Christ. Not only is that true, but the last thing that we find in this passage is that it produces something. It has a specific thing that is then produced in the life of a person who trusts in Christ. And it's found in the last two verses. He says, the spiritual person, unlike the natural person, verse 14, verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. Now, here's what he's saying. The spiritual person is in a different place than the natural person because now possessing the Spirit of God, he has the capacity to understand spiritual truth. It doesn't mean that he automatically understands it all. It doesn't mean that he will understand it because he can resist it, of course. He cannot think about the Word of God. He can turn away from it at points, though the Spirit will pursue him or her to bring them back. But the spiritual person has a whole capacity that the natural person doesn't have. And he explains what that capacity is in verse 16, the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. That is, we understand or we have the capacity to understand the mind of God, the thoughts of God, the purposes of God, the whole message of God that he decreed for our glory, as it says in verse 7. We have the mind of Christ. And, and I think what that means is this. It doesn't mean that we have some mystical experience through which all of a sudden things become clear to us. It doesn't mean we have some obscure, impenetrable uh, kind of insight or insight into some obscure, impenetrable truth that is true of God and no one else has it but us. We, we're the only ones who have it. It doesn't mean anything like that. It, it, after all, the passage says that whatever it is we have, we only have because of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working together in our hearts. So it's not something that we just possess apart from those two things, but it says that we have the mind of Christ. Now, I think what it is basically meant is something that Jesus taught in the Gospel of John. You don't need to turn there, but in John 16, in the upper room on the last night of his life, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he tells them that he's about to depart. He's going to leave and go back to the Father. And he says, but here's what I want you to know. When I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to take my place, so to speak, and the Holy Spirit is going to become inside of you the resident source of understanding. So I have been present with you, he said to the apostles and to those of the first century. I have been with you all of this time, and you have seen me and touched me and heard me, and I've taught you, and I have explained to you and illustrated to you the mind of God towards you. But now you're going to possess the Spirit, and all true believers are going to possess the Spirit. And the Spirit will be my presence inside of you, more than able to take the truths of God which are contained in the book of God, more than able to take those and to penetrate your soul and spirit with them in such a way that they become a part of who you are and what you mean. Here's what he said. John chapter 16, verse 14. He, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will glorify me because he will take what is mine and he will disclose it to you. 
And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He takes the things of Christ, that is the truths of the word of God, the record of Jesus. He takes that and he discloses it to us so that we have the word of God, at least we may, it's what the whole purpose of the Christian life is. We have the things of God, God's thoughts towards us, penetrating into our hearts and our lives and able to change the way that we think. What an incredible thing. It means that the Holy Spirit can enable us as Christians to seek to live like Christ in every situation. We have not simple answers to all of life's biggest problems, but we have the capability, according to God. We are Christians. We have the ability to discern the proper course of action in any situation. Anything that the world brings our way, any question that arises, any issue that we face, no matter how big or how small, we have, through the word of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we have the capability of seeking out those answers. They may not always be simple. They may not always be clear, but we have the capability of moving forward. We have something even more than that. That's sort of objective and outward. But all the things that describe who Jesus was, his other-centered love, his compassion for people that he showed, even in the midst of being mistreated, those things that the Bible tells us about, that they describe something outside of their words that exist only in Jesus himself, we have by the Spirit the opportunity that those things would even be produced inside of us as the things we read about Jesus become real inside of us in our experience. The gospel draws a line. The line is between the spiritual and the natural. Those who possess the Holy Spirit have the capacity to internalize the word of God and those who don't. So look one last time at verse 9. And he describes what this whole thing is about. What is this message all about? Well, he says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. That's what it's about. And I want you to understand, what he's saying is that all the traditional sources of life change, of understanding, of thinking, of relating to people, of living, all of those traditional sources were completely ineffective. This is something that we could never get by thinking, living on a horizontal plane, no matter how far we traveled, how many experiences we had, we couldn't grasp it. In fact, what no eye has seen, that is the empirical evidence of life. We could study life and things and facts of nature, and we would never arrive at the message of the gospel and what it means. And not just the empirical facts of life. He says, what no ear has heard, that is all the traditional sources of knowledge that might teach us. No school could teach us this. No family could pass it down through the generations. No communities with all of their culture and ethics could ever come up with this and impart it to us. What no heart has imagined, that is, no intuitive understanding, no personal insight, no mystical experience could ever give a person an understanding of what God intends, what he wants us to know and to experience, what God has prepared for those who love him. And specifically, that's the content. What God has prepared for those who love him, that is the eternal purpose of God. The message of the Bible that it unfolds from beginning to end, that is God's purpose to save a people and make a name for himself, to put them in a world free from the stain of sin forever. That's his eternal purpose. God's purpose is about you 
with full assurance of faith, grasping this and applying it to your heart in such a way that you realize I belong to God forever through the blood of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. It's about you opening your heart and mind to God and seeking to give to him what he deserves, which is the glory that acknowledges everything that he is. And not only that, the glory that is meant to be displayed when you live by his power for him in your fallible and weak life. When you allow him to work in you and in the lives of your families and you rejoice in and revel in being a part of God's eternal purpose to bring glory and praise to himself by making a people for his name. And Paul says that is what God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Meaning that's what we have right now and forever. He doesn't say, that's what God will reveal to us someday when we get there. That's true as well. That will be the full experience. But he means even right now. He wants to give you a taste, an ever-increasing taste, of what it means to be his child, one of his people, a blood-bought sinner. Now, if that's true, let me ask you, how can worship ever be dull and lifeless as it sometimes is. Sometimes I feel that way. How can that be the case? If what we're talking about and the reason we're meeting has to do with what God decreed for us before the ages, or how can a church ever be sleepy and lethargic, which churches sometimes are, I mean, how could anyone within the Christian fellowship ever live a complacent life of indifference to God and come and do his or her bit for God on Sunday and go home and not think about it at all? I mean, how could that ever happen? When the things that the living God wants to teach us, he has given us his spirit and he's given us his word in order to produce that in our lives and impart it to us in our understanding and our experience in an increasing way. So wake up and be God's people. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you so much that what you tell us is you want to impart to us by your spirit a taste of your eternal purpose the things that God has prepared for those who love him. An understanding of what it means to be forgiven. An experience of that that permeates all of our lives, that we understand forgiveness is something that sets us free from all of the things that bind us so often in life. And so we pray that you would continue graciously to be at work and we thank you that in addition to your word and your spirit, though this passage doesn't say us, you give us one other thing that makes this easier. That is, you give us the fellowship of the people of God. And as we meet together and covenant with one another to be that kind of people who want to seek God and to experience him and his love and his grace, you multiply the effectiveness of your word and your spirit in working inside of us. And we pray that you would make us a church where our worship is in fact giving to you our whole lives. Praise in Jesus' name.